Will you pray with me? Father, I come before you now and I ask God that you move in this place like only you can. And that despite the messenger, that your message will be abundantly clear. That God, your word will be heard. And that the power and the truth of your word will accomplish the purpose for which it's been sent. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to start by thanking Dr. Patterson for inviting me here. It is a true honor to be here. Uh, we met for the very first time in person um, at the uh, SBC convention last year after I spoke at the Connect 316 conference. I was invited to speak apparently because I'm a recovering five-point Calvinist. And uh, I, I want to actually, on that note, speak today about a truth that led me away from Calvinism. Before I dive into this, however, I am not so naive as to think there are not some Calvinists even in this very room. And I want to just say a side note to you first. I love you. I really do. Um, I've got family members. My best friend is Calvinistic. I was Calvinist for over a decade of my life. And so I am not an anti-Calvinist. I really am not. I disagree. I, I think I probably feel about you, hopefully what you feel about me, that you're a well-intending brother that loves the Lord and that just simply disagrees about a couple of passages in particular and how we interpret those things. We agree on most everything else. We work together in evangelism. We stand arm in arm to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and it's with that spirit that I approach this topic in love for my brothers and sisters. I remember waking up to my alarm clock and I, as a college student, as a five-point Calvinist at the time, and Adrian Rogers was on. And I remember listening to him first thing in the morning rail on Calvinism, and I remember my blood pressure just going up as I was listening to him. And I imagine some of the Calvinists in this room are going to feel that. You want time for a rebuttal, I totally understand. You want time to stand up and say, but you don't understand, but you don't know what we really believe. I, I get it, I've been there, I understand. But I pray that you can put down our theological swords just for a few minutes and just understand each other, at least understand, if nothing else, why I'm no longer a Calvinist and why I've left behind Calvinism. And even if you disagree with me, we can choose to disagree without being disagreeable. And we can continue to do the things that really matter. And in places like this, seminaries, places of learning, we can have those discussions in the coffee shop, but then go out arm in arm to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an important thing to do. With that in mind, and with that hopefully that intention of my heart well established, I want us to discuss the purpose and the power of the gospel in enabling the lost. Now, this is closely tied in with the doctrine of human responsibility, because after all, God does hold all people responsible to his very words. Jesus said that his very word would judge us on the final day in John 12, 48. And Paul teaches in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 that those who perish do so not because of Adam's sin, they perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. So clearly, God holds mankind responsible to the truth revealed by his word, the gospel of our salvation. Now, hear me when I say this. Most Calvinists would absolutely quickly agree, we affirm human responsibility. But I think they mean something very different than what most people think of when they say the word responsible. When a Calvinist says that a fallen man is responsible, he does not mean that the lost person is actually able to respond, at least morally speaking. 
In fact, the Calvinistic doctrine of total inability, the T of the tulip, total depravity, total inability clearly denies that fallen man has the moral ability to willingly respond in faith even to God's own appeals. In other words, what the Calvinist teaches is that mankind is born unable to want anything else but to hate God and run away from him. Calvinistic scholar A.W. Pink said it like this. It's up on the screen for you to read. He says, as a creature, the natural man is responsible to love, obey, and serve God. As a sinner, he is responsible to repent and believe the gospel. But at the outset, we are confronted with the fact that the natural man is unable to love and serve God and that the sinner of himself cannot repent and believe. Now, because of that underlined two words there, of himself, I think most of us in this room could sign off on that statement. Because he says of himself, we can all agree that of ourselves, we could not repent and believe. But hear me, brethren, when I say, it has not been left to ourself. We are not here alone. God has sent Christ. He has sent the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. He has sent the inspired Holy Spirit wrought gospel. We are not left to ourselves. But you have to understand this. Calvinists don't believe that's enough. They don't believe that what God did in sending Christ, what God did in sending the Holy Spirit and the gospel, they don't believe that is sufficient to enable a free response of man to willingly want to come. Because remember, they're born, decreed by God with their wanter broken in a sense. They're, they're unable to want to come to God. And God has decreed it to be that way. They believe God has to do even more than send the Christ. He has to do more than to send the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. He has to do more than to send the gospel. He has to actually regenerate or irresistibly change someone inwardly to make their wanter work again and to make them want to repent and believe. Now, I want you to think about this. Calvinists believe that because mankind is born fallen, they are morally unable to respond to God's own appeal to be reconciled from that fall, and yet God punishes them for eternity anyway. So when a Calvinist says that fallen men are responsible, what they really mean, and I think I'm being fair when I say this, what they really mean by responsible is justly punishable, even though they cannot morally respond. In other words, God is just to punish a person born in this condition because of the imputed sin of Adam, and thus God can justly punish even if someone cannot want to respond to God and is born by God's decree to hate God and cannot do anything about it from birth. The doctrine of total inability isn't to be confused with the doctrine of human depravity. Now, I, I want to go on record here to clearly state for everyone to hear, I affirm the doctrine of human depravity. After all, I am a father of four children. You cannot be a parent and not recognize the doctrine of depravity. I remember this hitting close to home back when my children were quite a bit younger. In fact, we just had three at the time. My youngest was my little girl. She was just a newborn. And I love it when they're that age because they're not mobile yet. They're easier to watch. And I was keeping an eye on her, the children that day. My wife was out shopping, and I was at home with all three kids. The two older ones were probably about four and five. They were in the back room playing nicely. Esther was there on her blanket in the living room just having a good time. I leave the room maybe for 30 seconds to refill my coffee. I come back, and my daughter is gone. 
She doesn't even know how to roll over, much less crawl, and she disappeared. And I start to panic. I'm looking around. I run down the hallway, bust in my little boy's room, and sure enough, there's my little girl having the time of her life, just laughing and giggling with her big brothers. And I totally ruined their party. I said, boys, what are you doing? You know the rules. You know you're not supposed to pick up your sister. You could drop her. My oldest, Colson, his eyes are as wide as saucers, filled with fear. And he says, but daddy, daddy, we didn't pick her up. We drug her. <laughs> they walked down that hallway. They each grabbed her by a leg and they drug her down the hall. <laughs> Y'all pray for my daughter. I just thought of this. This is kind of a good example of irresistible grace. They were dragging her, but she was wanting to go. Yeah, that might be something to say for that. Let's be clear. I believe all evangelical Orthodox Christians should affirm the biblical doctrine of human depravity. So all the Calvinists in the room, put down your phones and stop tweeting that I'm a Pelagian, okay? Understand this. I'm not just talking about the nature of fallen humanity this morning. I am talking about the sufficiency of the gospel, which was sent for the purpose of making an appeal to who? Fallen humanity. That's its purpose. Paul said it this way, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Notice what he's saying. It's an appeal. It is imploring. It is begging. It's beseeching. We implore you. We beseech you. We beg of you to be reconciled to God. So my disagreement with my good Calvinistic brethren is really not so much about the moral abilities of fallen humanity. The point today is about the power of the gospel. It's about the sufficiency of God's word what Romans 1.16 calls the power of God unto salvation, the very word of God, that which cuts through bone and marrow, soul and spirit, according to Hebrews chapter 4. That's what we're talking about this morning. I can firmly agree with my Calvinistic brothers when they quote what we were heard this morning, Isaiah 55.11. My word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what? What I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. We can all agree God's word does not return void. He accomplishes his purpose every single time his word is spoken. Can we all agree with that? Absolutely. The disagreement, the point of contention, if you will, is what is that purpose? What is the purpose of the gospel? Is it to inform the specially elect people how special they are? Is the purpose of the gospel to make an offer you can't refuse? Is that the purpose of the gospel? Let's read John 20, 31. These things are written. Now, what are these things that are written? Well, by chapter 20, he has written the gospel. He has written the story of Jesus. He has written about the miracles of Jesus. He has written about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. These things he's referring to is the power of God unto salvation, the inspired holy words of God, that which is brought by the Holy Spirit himself, given to us, breathed to holy apostles, and written for us, and preserved for us. That's these things. These things are written, why? Here's the purpose of the gospel, right here clearly stated by the inspired text. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's about salvation. That's what he wants. 
God's purpose in sending the gospel is so that you, the lost person, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the purpose, and it does not return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which it's sent. And the purpose is very clear. The gospel is sent to make an appeal to those who are lost so that they may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So please this morning understand my point of disagreement with my Calvinistic brothers and sisters. I specifically am addressing the Calvinistic doctrine of man's innate moral inability to respond willingly, morally, to God himself, to the Holy Spirit-inspired truth that he brought to us. And I, I hope you understand this. Calvinists, in my estimation, don't take offense, but this is my argument, Calvinists tend to conflate two different issues. They tend to conflate man's responsibility to believe and repent with God's responsibility to save which is why they can convincingly argue salvation is totally of God. If you put those two things together as one thing, then you can say salvation is totally of God because you have conflated man's responsibility to repent and God's responsibility to save. Look at it this way. If the prodigal son was walking home from his pigsty, on his journey home, is the father obligated to receive the son back because he came home? No. That is monergistically, if you want to call it that, totally the choice of the father. He does not have to receive the son back. So the responsibility of the son to leave his pigsty and repent is separate from the responsibility of the father to save. There are two distinct responsibilities. You, according to scripture, mankind is responsible to believe and repent. God alone is responsible to save. And so when you conflate those two things and make them into one, and you say things like God is the author of salvation, and God is all of salvation, is sovereign over salvation, you've conflated two different responsibilities as if they're one. And therefore, you confuse the issue by saying that God's not only responsible to save, he's also responsible to make you believe, to make you trust in him, to make you repent through irresistible means, by changing your will, by regeneration. And that's not, I don't believe, what Scripture teaches. Now, Calvinists will typically argue three major points, and I want us to look at each one of them in turn. One, no one can seek God on their own. And they typically refer to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 and following. Two, no one can fulfill the law's demands. And they typically refer to Romans chapter 8. Three, they will argue all are spiritually dead in sin. And they will oftentimes refer to Ephesians chapter 2, along with a few other passages. Now, let me just say really quickly here, we can and we should affirm every one of those truths on the screen right there. It is true that no one can seek God on our own. Hear me, brethren. Once again, we are not on our own. How does the fact that we can't seek God prove that we cannot respond willingly to a God who is actively seeking us by the powerful Holy Spirit-inspired gospel truth? Tell me this, is proof that I can't pick up my phone right now and call the president and get him to answer the, the phone? Is that proof in and of itself that if he were to call me, I couldn't answer his call? Of course not. We all agree God takes the initiative. He's the one who makes the call. 
The real question is whether or not you believe that the gracious, Holy Spirit wrought truth of the gospel is sufficient work and sufficient initiative of God or not. Number two, we all agree that no one can fulfill the demands of the law. Not a single one of us can be perfect. Not a single one of us can fulfill what the law demands of us. But let me ask this, and I ask it in kindness. How does that prove no one can admit that fact and place their faith in the one who fulfilled the law in our place? Hear this. The inability to be perfect does not equal the inability to trust in the perfect one. Third, we can all agree that we all were once dead in our sins and trespasses. Amen? Every single one of us were dead in our, our sins and trespasses. But here's the question. Were we dead like Lazarus or were we dead like the prodigal son? Now, Calvinists insist that spiritual deadness in Scripture, the analogy of spiritual deadness, means that we're corpse-like dead in the way that Lazarus was in the tomb. But I challenge you to read the narrative of Lazarus in the tomb, and I don't believe you'll find a link between soteriology and Lazarus in the tomb. However, you will find a link with the prodigal son story. After he returned home and he was received again by the unmerited grace of his father who did not owe him that reception, did not owe him redemption, did not owe him salvation on the basis of his return. That's totally monergistically the choice of the father to receive the son back. Salvation is totally of the father, totally of God. But once he does that, he declares in Luke 15, 24, he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. It's almost like when the father says to the wayward son, you're dead to me. It's, it's an analogy of separate, uh, being separate. It's, a, it's an analogy of you're an enemy in need of being reconciled. Deadness is representing lostness here. It's not representing a lack of moral ability to respond to God's own truth. Nowhere does the scripture teach that spiritual deadness equals corpse-like inability to respond to God's powerful Holy Spirit wrought truth. It never teaches this. If you want to take the biblical analogy that far, then why is it that lost people have very different reactions to the gospel? Corpses all have the exact same reaction to anything you do. They just lay there. But dead people, spiritually dead people, have all kinds of reactions to the gospel. So what I'm arguing there is that you simply can't take this analogy so far as to mean corpse-like inability. It means that we're dead in sin, which means that we're separate from God. We're enemies of God in much the same way that in Romans chapter 6, when Paul is making the argument that we should be dead in sin or dead to sin. As Christians, as believers, we are to be dead to sin. Does that mean we can't sin? Of course not. What it means is that we are to declare ourselves enemies of sin. We are to separate ourselves from sin. So deadness is an analogy of being separate from, of, of being an enemy of something, not of inability. Nothing in Scripture suggests that the biblical analogy of being spiritually dead is a corpse-like inability to respond to God's powerful, life-giving, Holy Spirit-wrought truth. Truth that Jesus says in John 8, 32 is, has the ability to set man free. So we can agree with our Calvinistic brethren, one, that we are born slaves to sin. But we need to acknowledge and believe that God's truth may set you free. 
We can affirm with our Calvinistic brethren, we are by nature enemies of God. But we believe that Christ, according to the scripture, makes his appeal to all of his enemies, to every single one of them, be reconciled to God. We can also agree with our Calvinistic brethren that mankind is spiritually dead and in need of new life. But we also agree with the Apostle John, who taught that God sent the gospel. Why? Quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I want you to notice the order of that text. Notice what it says. It is by believing that you have new life. It doesn't say that you're given new life so as to believe. That's why I believe that the Calvinists have the cart before the horse. What happens is that by believing, you are granted, you are given by grace, new life. He doesn't owe you that because you believe. If, if that were the case, then he would not, never have needed to send Christ to the cross. He could have just given Abraham new life whenever he believed and was credited to him as righteousness. There would have been no need for Christ to even come when Abraham believed. The reason Christ had to come was to pay the debt of sin that even Abraham owed. So his believing was not sufficient to merit his salvation. He still needed the cross. He needed God's grace. And so faith in and of itself doesn't merit salvation. We have to understand that. And we also have to understand the order of life and faith. Let's look at the whole counsel of God's word. Ezekiel 18, 30 and 32 spells it out very clearly. It says this, cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Notice the order there. Cast away all your transgressions, make yourself a new heart. The order is very clear. It doesn't say I will make you a new heart so that you will certainly cast away your transgressions. That's not the order in the scripture. It goes on to say, why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. What comes first? It doesn't say, I'll make you alive so that you will surely repent. It says, repent so as to live. Life comes from repentance by grace, not the other way around. John 5.40 says it this way, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, if the Calvinism's order salutis is correct, that should read, I refused you life as God. I refused you life so that you could not come to me. But the order is very clear in the text. Come to me through faith in order to have new life. Acts 15.9 says it this way, he made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts. How? By faith. The order, it is by faith that he purifies our hearts. Now, the Calvinist would say that he purifies their hearts by regeneration to make them have faith, irresistibly cause them to put their trust in Christ. Again, that's not the order. He purified their hearts by the means of faith. Faith comes first. 2 Corinthians 3.16 puts it this way. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Again, the order is clearly established. Anyone who turns to the Lord by faith then the veil is removed. Whereas the Calvinist would say the veil has to be irresistibly removed by his sovereign grace. He has to regenerate the person, take away the veil, and then they will turn to the Lord. That's not the order of the text. Now, I do believe that Calvinists are well-intending. I really do. But the T, specifically the T of total inability, not of the part which talks about depravity, because we can affirm depravity. But the T of the tulip's inability, systematic, 
not only undermines human responsibility, I truly believe it undermines the power and the purpose of the gospel itself. You see, the gospel was not sent to inform special elite group of elect people how special they are. And it's not an offer you can't refuse. The gospel, according to the scripture, is God in you making an appeal and pleading with every man, woman, boy, and girl, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's imploring, it's begging, it's pleading for all humanity to come to Christ in faith. And his gospel does not return void. It enables that response. Now, as I even preach this, I can hear the inter-diatribe in my mind. And the old Calvinist in me is yelling out, that interlocutor, you might call him, And he's yelling out to me, probably right along with the Calvinists in the room inside who just want to stand up and they want to shout from Romans chapter 9, who are you, oh man, to question God? And back when I was a student here at Southwestern, I was a young, restless, reformed Calvinist, and I can't tell you how many times I uttered those words in defense of my tulip systematic. I was convinced that Paul, in chapter 9 of Romans, was putting all you free will synergists in your place. I was convinced that all of the free will philosophers and professors here at Southwestern, even at the time, were worshiping the idol of free will, bowing at the altar of their synergism. That's what I really thought until I came to learn that the interlocutor that we speak of in Romans 9, the objector in Paul's mind of the diatribe, he's not a synergistic Arminian, standing in defense of free will. This is not a traditionalist like Dr. Patterson saying, oh, I'm objecting to this concept of God before, the, before time ever began of condemning most of humanity to eternal torment without any hope of salvation. That's not the objector in Paul's mind. Paul's objector in Romans 9, my argument is, is the exact same objector, the interlocutor. It's the exact one he introduced back in Romans chapter 3. The objector is a hardened, callous Jew, a rebellious, self-righteous Jew who has grown calloused in his rebellion over the years. And though loved by a patient and long-suffering creator, this rebellious, stubborn Jew is now been given over or hardened, given a spirit of stupor, as Romans, says, Romans 11 says. He's been given over to his rebellion. Why? So as to accomplish God's purpose in redemption. So this hardened Jew, who's now sealed over in his hardness, given a spirit of stupor, judged by God judicially, saying, I'm giving you over to your hardened condition. I'm letting you go the way you want to go, the way you've chosen freely to go, and I'm giving you over that to accomplish something better through you for the redemption of the world, and even your own redemption, by the way. And this is the hardened Jew who's asking the question, why, why am I to be blamed, God? Why is God just to bring wrath on me if my unrighteousness, if my rebellion as a Jew to cry out, crucify him, if that's actually a part of God's ordained plan to bring redemption to the world, why are you blaming me for that, God? That's the objector. That's the objector. God has never said to harden anyone who is not already hardened by their own free choosing. 
God longs for Israel's salvation, and he has held out his hands to them all day long, as Paul quotes from Isaiah in the very next chapter in Romans chapter 10. In fact, the same Jews who are cut off in chapter 9 for their unbelief are potentially grafted back in if they leave their unbelief according to chapter 11. The same Jews who are stumbling in chapter 9 are said to not have stumbled beyond recovery according to Romans chapter 11. The same Jews who are hardened in their unbelief in chapter 9 are those Paul holds out hope for, that his own ministry will provoke them by envy so that they too may be saved according to Romans chapter 11. So the diatribe, the interlocutor in Romans 9, is not about synergism versus monergism as some would like to frame it. It's about Israel pursuing righteousness by works of the law versus pursuing righteousness by faith. You see, back when I was a Calvinist, I don't believe I rightly understood the analogy of Paul of the potter and the clay in Romans chapter 9, probably because I didn't relate it to what Paul was relating it to in Jeremiah chapter 18. I used to think that Paul was teaching that the potter molded and used his vessels however it suited him in the purpose of his ultimate goal of self-glorification. For me as a young Calvinist, it was all about God's effort to glorify himself, even if that meant the expense of his own creation. Even if he had to step on most of humanity in order to lift himself up, who are you to question God if he does that? He's the maker of heavens and earth. He's the maker of humanity. If he wants to sacrifice most of undeserving humanity for the sake of his own glorification, who are you, oh man, to talk back to God for that? That's really what I thought Paul's intention was here. And I preached it and I converted over 10 years, many people over to Calvinism, truly believing that was the intention of Paul here. Later in life, however, I came to understand that analogy very differently. I now believe the scripture reveals a potter who manifests his glory by sacrificing himself for undeserving vessels, not by making vessels morally disabled from birth so as to condemn them in order to display his glory. In other words, I have come to believe this, God is most glorified not at the expense of his creation, but at the expense of himself for the sake of even undeserving creation. God gives himself up for every man, woman, boy, and girl because he loves his enemies. I like the way uh, Dr. Jerry Walls puts it when he wrote this. He said, God cannot fail to be perfectly loving any more so than he can lie. You don't have to have children, but if you choose to have children, you take on an obligation to love them. God's freedom was in the freedom to create or not. He didn't have to create. But once having created as a necessarily good and loving being, he cannot but love what he has created. Love is not an option with God. It's not a question of whether or not God chooses to love. It is who he is. God is love. Now, Walls goes on to argue this isn't a weakness of God. This is the greatest and most self-glorifying strength. Is it a weakness that I can't walk up to one of my children and strangle them to death? Is that a weakness? I would, I would say that's a strength of character, that I am unable to morally desire and willingly to do that. I just could not do that. That is actually a strength. In fact, it's the most glorifying characteristic of his eternal nature. To declare God's universal self-sacrificial love to the entire world reveals God for what makes him abundantly glorious, and that is his love. We are to love our enemies. Why? Because God actually loves his enemies. Now, John MacArthur even wrote a book on this. 
declaring that God does love every single person. That's why I qualify this by calling it self-sacrificial love. Because apparently, with some Calvinists, the concept of loving the reprobate, the people chosen before the foundation of the world to be unable to willingly come to the Father, is somehow deemed as common love in some way. I call it self-sacrificial love because Jesus called us not just to have a common general love for people, he called us to be self-sacrificial for others. As Paul even exemplifies in Romans 9, 1 through 3, that he's willing to sacrifice or to give up himself for these Jews who've been cut off in their unbelief. That reflects the very nature of God himself as revealed in Christ. So when God invites his enemies to be reconciled, he's making an appeal from a sincere heart of self-sacrificial love. As Ezekiel 33, 11 says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O people of Israel? Turn and live. And the prophet Hosea in Hosea 3.1 says, the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So his love is existing even in among those who turn to other gods. Obviously, God does sincerely love with a self-sacrificial love even those who turn from his provision and grace. The gospel is God's appeal to every man, woman, boy, and girl to be reconciled through faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, the only thing more devastating than a lost soul is a lost soul with no one looking for her. A lost soul that is unwanted by her own God. A lost soul born, rejected, and hated salvifically by her maker. A a lost soul without hope of salvation. And I'm here to declare this morning, that soul does not exist on this planet. God genuinely loves and longs for the salvation of every individual, and that truth must continually be proclaimed from our church. Why? Because it was the cry of Christ who said, come to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden, it is light. There's one last thing that I want to discuss as we close. When we come to understand certain aspects of what Calvinists teach within the scriptures, there are some passages that do, at first reading, seem very convincing. I admit that. And oftentimes those passages, I don't believe, take into consideration the historical context of what's happening when Jesus was here on earth. Some professors and scholars refer to a doctrine that's called the messianic secret. Over seven different times um, come to mind Mark 9, 9, for example, or Matthew 16, 20, where Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody who I am yet. It's not the right time. Don't tell people that I'm the Messiah yet. It's not the right time. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus, as Mark chapter 4 says, speak in parables so that those on the outside couldn't understand? Why would he say, Lord, I thank you that you've revealed these things to the weak babes, the fishermen, the nobodies, but you're hiding these things from the wise and learned, the guys with the robes and the governors that live in the big buildings? Why are you hiding it from them but revealing it to nobodies? Why would he say all this? Doesn't Jesus want everybody to be saved? Doesn't God want everybody like the, 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 the traditionalist says? 
Doesn't God want, why, why would these passages like Romans, I mean, John chapter six talk about him not drawing everybody here. Why does John chapter two say he's not entrusting himself to even some of the Jews? Why in the world is that happening? This doctrine oftentimes called the messianic secret is believed to be a strategy of God by which he is going to accomplish the crucifixion as Paul even explained to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter two, verses seven through nine, where he says, these mysteries that have been hidden for generations, they're now being revealed because had the leaders of the day known who he was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, Jesus was strategic in his revelation. Even his own disciples didn't understand what the Messiah looked like, the suffering servant rather than the conquering hero. They didn't understand it. They weren't, they weren't getting it yet. And Jesus wasn't giving it all to them yet. He had a purpose to accomplish. So you have passages like John chapter 6 where he's speaking very parabolic language, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And he doesn't stop them and say, hey, guys, don't leave. I, let me explain what I really mean. That's just symbolic. Come on back here. That's not what he does. He lets them leave, and only the 12 stay. It's like Jesus is trying to provoke them. It's almost like he has a plan, a plan to accomplish the crucifixion on the cross. You see, those passages which are plucked out of their historical context are oftentimes used in soteriology to say, look, see, God loves some people, and he doesn't love others. See, God wants to save some people, and he's hiding it from others. When the truth of the matter is, he's, he's actually fulfilling his preordained plan to bring the crucifixion by speaking in parables so as to blind the truth from already self-righteous, hardened individuals so that he would accomplish crucifixion on the cross. And it's only after he's raised up, John 12, 32, that he draws all men to himself. And how does he do that? What's the means of drawing all men to himself? He commissions the gospel to go to all creatures. He commissions the gospel to be preached to the bride of Christ, Holy Spirit-filled messengers of God. The Holy Spirit is at work by bringing his word to the world. That's how he works. And he does not start doing that until he fulfills his goal of the crucifixion. It's when he's lifted up that he commissions them to go and to preach, as the scripture says. That is the power, that is the purpose of the gospel, to draw all humanity to himself. And that is not even being fulfilled in John chapter 6 because he hadn't fulfilled the gospel yet. He hadn't completed his work yet. The strategy was to keep it quiet from a certain group of people until he accomplished his purpose. The Gentiles, they're not even brought in until, remember, Peter has his white sheet dream and Paul is called to go Remember the, the story? Jesus comes to his own and his own won't receive him. And he blinds them. He hardens them. He gives them over to their desire so as to accomplish his redemptive plan through them. That's the historical context that these proof texts are plucked out of to plug into a systematic called tulip. And it simply is not what the Bible teaches. Now, Calvinists who disagree with me, fine to disagree with me. But do you really understand not what the Joel Olsteins of the world believe. Do you understand what the Malcolm Yarnells of the world believe? Do you understand what the Paige Pattersons of the world believe? Do you understand what the scholars from this perspective believe? Because I had so entrenched myself with Calvinistic authors that I thought the only alternative to Calvinism is what they told me it was. God looking through the quarters of time to foresee who would do this or that, and then he chooses them based on, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll be a Calvinist then. 
I was surrounded by people who did not teach from the scholarly perspective the non-Calvinistic understanding of passages like Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and John 6. I did not fully grasp the full context historically of God's word. And so I'm challenging you, even if you disagree, wonderful. But so oftentimes, if I come across a Calvinist and I ask them, what do you think we believe about John 6? What do you think we believe about Ephesians 1? What do you think Malcolm Yarnell would say about Romans 9? Well, I, I think they would say that, they just, I think they ignore it. Some, that's what some of the answers are. Now, not all of the Calvinists are that way. Some engage with the scholars, I admit. But many of the resurging Calvinists right now, they haven't engaged with the scholars. And I want to challenge you, seminary students, go deeper. Go deeper than John Piper. Go deeper than MacArthur. Go deeper than the, than the people who are preaching the surface level of Calvinism and see what the scholars are saying from the non-Calvinists. I know they're not the cool kids on the block right now. I know they aren't. The cool kids on the block are the Matt Chandlers of the world. I understand that. But hear me, Calvinism has resurged over the history, hasn't it? About three different times over the last 400 years, and it always dies back out. Why? Because God ordained it? We have to ask ourselves that question and seek the truth and seek the truth in love. And I pray that you take this message with a heart that it's intended to seek the truth, God's holy word, in the love that he has given us. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that your word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it this morning. In Christ's holy name, amen.